All right, I have a question for you guys. How many of you guys realized that there was the same song twice during worship? Okay, half of you did, the rest of you are like, yeah, Jesus. And um, he did. <laughs> yeah, it's okay. Um, yeah, it was a different version. It was a slower version, different version. But I wanted to play that because um, um, I don't know why, but I just put, no, I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. No. Um, it, there's, a, there's the one line that says, oh, come let us adore him. Do you guys know what that means? Um, a lot of people just think, oh, it, it's, it's love and, and it's not, let me pull it back up. I closed out all my apps on accident, so there we go, brought it back up. It means, well, it says to love and respect. You can turn me down just a little bit because I can hear myself and I don't like that. I sound weird. There we go. Yeah, anyway. All right, so it means to love and respect. Um, and I think that's the whole point of the body of Christ. When we come together is to adore him, is to love him and respect him. I mean, I, that's, a, that's a natural outpouring of who we are as followers of Jesus Christ because we love him and we, we know what he's done for us and we know um, where he's brought us from to where we are now, um, what he's bringing us out of. Sometimes it's, it, he's bringing us out of the land of Egypt into the promised land. Sometimes he's brought us into the promised land and we're just enjoying the, the fruit of the promised land. Um, but I just, I wanted to, that song conveys a lot because it's not about, I'm not going to talk about the song per se, but I wanted to emphasize that because it is our job to love and adore Jesus. It is our job to worship him. It is our job as a, as a lifestyle to worship and adore and to love him for who he is because not because what he's done for us, but just because of who he is. A lot of times we, we, we love him and, adore, and we worship him because of what he's done for us, but it, 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 take all of that away. He's still good. If he never gave you anything, he is still good. He is still God. He is still the chosen son of God who died for our sins. And it is our job to love him just for that. Nothing else. It is our job to love him because he is the, the son of God. And so, um, moving on from that, I'm sorry, just that was something I wanted to convey to you guys, but um, because I think sometimes we, we sing this song during the Christmas season, but that song is a song for every day. That song, we can sing that every day. But just because there's Christmassy stuff in the background <laughs> while we're singing it doesn't make it something that we can't sing on a daily basis. I've been in worship services where that song comes on and I'm like, it's, it's a emotion invoking song when we hear it because we know it, what happens is why do it, does it evoke emotion in us? Because we know what that song is referring to and what it is talking about. And so, um, la not last week, I don't know, whatever I spoke last, I can't keep track of the days. I'm just, yeah, whatever that was. Um, I've kind of lost in time, so um, yeah, that, yeah, it says December 4th right there. There we go. <laughs> I forgot one note to put dates on stuff, so yeah, I can remember when I, I preach. So um, a couple weeks ago, I talked about the expectation of promise, how um, Simeon had heard the promise of Jesus coming and was expecting Jesus to come, and, and God told him, you will not die. You will see the Savior, and we don't know his age. We don't really know all, a whole lot about him, but there, there's a quick spot in the Bible that 
apparently God wanted us to know about. You ever notice that? You see this one little blurb of Scripture, and it's just like some random person. You never hear about them again. But I think that's Jesus, or excuse me, as God trying to remind us of who Jesus is through this, this one person. That this man waited his entire life. That God said he wouldn't die. I mean, I'm guessing this guy's pretty old by now. That God's saying, I'm just going to keep you alive until you see Jesus. But there's these little blurbs throughout Scripture. And they might be five, six passages. And just little things that we see that God will pull out and wants to remind us of who he is in Scripture and about his promises in Scripture. And this man, we never hear about him again. We never hear about him again, but God reminds us of who he is through these people. There's some importance that the Holy Spirit is, it was directing these writers of these Gospels saying, hey, I want you to put this person in because this is going to help promote who Jesus is and, and, and remind people who Jesus is and his promises to us. And then he, I talked about Anna and she, a widow for years, and she waited for Jesus. She worked in the temple, served in the temple. She waited for him. And she gets two sentences in Scripture. Two sentences in Scripture, but what, what does it say? That she, when she sees the Christ child, she prophesies about him. So that what happens when we prophesy? It talks about that in the Old Testament, that the Spirit of the Lord came upon them and they prophesied. Well, the great thing about what we have now is we have the Spirit of the Lord living in us. The Holy Spirit lives in us. We have the ability to prophesy. So in the Old Testament, the Spirit of the Lord would come upon them for a moment or a season of time and they would prophesy and they would speak in tongues or they would, uh, you know, uh, like Elijah, he would just, you know, pick up his robe, tie it up and beat a chariot to town. So we see that in these moments that Anna is prophesying about him. She wasn't repeating prophecy. She was prophesying about him. It says she prophesied about him. And so the Spirit of the Lord comes upon her and she's able to prophesy what Jesus is going to do. And we don't see that. We don't hear that. But God gave her these moments of Scripture in Scripture to remind us of his goodness, remind him of who he is, validating who he is through these people. And I think God wants to do that to, to us through his word. Is We can get wrapped up in reading his word. We can get wrapped up in just reading it. And I want to encourage you is don't just read it to read it. Read it to, to experience him. It says he, that he hides things in his word for us to find. It's like reading the same scripture 40 times and then the 41st time you read it and you're like, where was that at in the Bible? Why, was that, why did I never get that? Because God has put on the spirit of revelation on us to be able to receive revelation from reading his scripture. So when we look at Anna, she was prophesying about Jesus. So do you know that 700 years before Jesus was born, they prophesied that he would be born? So how many of you guys remember what you had for dinner last Sunday? Unless it was fast food, you probably don't remember it. Because that fast food, you're like, oh, what did I eat that? You know, you get done eating that. Um, but 700 years before Jesus was born, they prophesied about him. Um, there's a song, um, O Come Emmanuel. And that song, if you, if you, for me, that evokes emotion in me because, and that's a hard thing, right, Sarah? <laughs> to get emotion in me. Um, is I look at it as a twofold song. 
It's the people of the Old Testament crying out for their Savior. Saying, come Emmanuel, come Savior of the world, come Jesus, deliver us from our captors, deliver us from what we have. And it's also a cry of believers saying, Jesus, come back. Come take us. Come bring us back to your kingdom where you promised you would take us. And so when we look at that, it's a, it's a prophetic song. The people prophet, uh, of call, calling and saying, come Emmanuel. They're, they're trying to call, call forth the, the Savior of the world. And then it's us saying, come back, bring us back home. Bring us to where you promised you would take us. And so when we look at prophecy in the Old Testament, 700 years before Jesus was born, they prophesied of his birth. In Hosea 11, 1, I'm going to be skipping through Scripture, so don't try to keep up. Um, it's kind of my, uh, it's going to be my ADD day of Scripture, so hold on and it'll, get, it'll be done. Hosea 11.1 1 says, when, the is, when Israel was a child, I loved him. And he's talking about Jacob. And out of Egypt, I will call my son. While the nation of Israel's origin story starts in Egypt, it was prophesied that his son will come out of Egypt. If you look at that, what happened? You look at Joseph. He was taken to Egypt as a slave, became a ruler. And then eventually his people become slaves and what happens, God brings them out of Egypt into the promised land. But what happens is, is this, is Jesus' parents flee violence against them and they go to Egypt. And then what happens is God calls, he says, I call my son out of Egypt. I'm calling my son out of Egypt to come back to his, the promised land to deliver him his people. You know what's funny is, is this, is God, when he says he will deliver us, gives us two ways it will always deliver us but it's not always in one single way think about this he brought his people out of slavery into a promised land but he said there will be a deliverer so god's freedom is always twofold in our life he brings us out of slavery but then he delivers us from even more so there, there's never a, well, God just did it and it's all done. No, God keeps moving. God keeps doing because God is, Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. If we look at Jesus, what does Jesus do? Jesus was prophesying about himself, but he, he's, he's prophesying what God is going to do on the earth and in, in our lives and what he is doing for us. So when we say, oh, Jesus came out of Egypt, yes, but Jesus was the deliverance that the people, came, that the children of Israel needed when they were brought out of Egypt. So if you look at, at the prophecies of Jesus, there's always a New Testament connection with an Old Testament connection that will, that will bring them together for completion. Psalms 2 says, the psalmist speaks about the kings of the earth banding together, and they call him the anointed one. If you read Psalms 2, I'm not going to read it all for you. Read Psalms 2, I dare you. Um, double dog dare you. I triple dog area. There we go. Sorry. If you guys know that reference, then I'm sorry. Um, but it said that kings of the east will bow to this king. And we talk about the wise men coming, and, you know, uh, a lot of people want to call them kings, but more, more than likely, they were more like Daniel, um, wise rulers, and they weren't, they weren't so much kings of, of countries, but they were the, is what, if you look at, the Old Testament, when Daniel is captured, what do the kings call for? They call for their, their magicians, their sages, and their wise men. They're they looking for men who could see what was happening in the times and give him 
a recommendation or a way to go in the times. Why did the kings call him uh, Daniel? Because they knew he heard from a higher power and they wanted direction from him. So when Daniel is, is talking about this, they're, they're looking at him going, hey, Daniel has wisdom, we want this. And more than likely, the prophecies that Daniel had about the Messiah, these men were probably from the same area. And so when Daniel's talked about this hundreds of years ago, these men have, been stu- have probably studied what Daniel wrote. Think about this. How did Daniel get put in the Bible? If Daniel was outside of Israel, was outside of, of the nation of Israel, and Daniel wrote his letters, wrote his whatever was going on, someone had to bring it from that kingdom in order for, that, for us to understand that. So what Daniel wrote was not just a, a, a one-time thing. I'm pretty sure that these, these wise men that, that came had studied what he had said. Isaiah 7.14 says there will be a virgin birth. And it says, Therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. The virgin will conceive and give birth to a son and will call him Emmanuel. Matthew directly links that in Matthew 1, 22 and 23 to Isaiah 7.14. So it's hard to, to look at Scripture without saying, how inspired was it? Because Matthew is referring to a 700-year-old prophecy about the Messiah who's coming under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit when he's doing that. I'm pretty sure Matthew didn't know all of the, the different um, prophecies about Jesus being a tax collector. He probably didn't really, really understand all those because that wasn't for the common people to understand at that point. But he referred back to Isaiah 7.14 when he, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit when he's writing that. Isaiah 9, 6-7 says, For unto us a child is born, for unto us a, a son is given. And his name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. And when you see this, can you, uh, and when you look at this scripture, and then you see the, the shepherds out in their fields flo- uh, tending their flocks by night and the angel of the Lord shows up. And he's talking about the same thing. They're confirming what Isaiah wrote. They're confirming what Scripture was wrote 700 years ago. So God doesn't just say one thing and it is final on that for us. If you look at that, God is always speaking to us. He was speaking to us in Isaiah and He was speaking to us in Luke and Matthew. But He's always confirming what He says. God will always confirm what He says. God doesn't say, oh, yep, yep, there we go. And then when we ask Him again, well, I already told you, you don't need to say anything. No, He always confirms what He wrote to us in Scripture. God is not, um, God will give you the information, show you how to, to use it, and then he will confirm it again in his word. Isaiah 11.1, 1, it says, a shoot will come up from the stump of Jesse. Okay, so what is a stump? It's an old tree that used to be a tree. So we had this tree in our yard that was getting too close to the power lines, and I think John cut it down one year for us. I can't remember. It was a couple years ago. It was right next to our driveway. 
because it was getting too close to the power lines or the telephone line or whatever it was. I just didn't want to have it knock anything down. And so he cut it down for us one day. And the stump was flushed to the ground. Nothing there. Next summer, there was shoots. Boom, boom, boom. There was, and it finally turned into this giant, like, oval-shaped shrub. And what, Jesus, or what God is telling us in this, this moment is that the, the stump of Jesse, the, the, the tree of Jesse that was almost cut down completely, he brought life through it. He brought life back to it. And it says, out of the shoot, excuse me, a shoot will come from the stump of Jesse. From his roots, a branch will bear fruit. Think about this. God can take what is dead and cut down and bring life back to it and bear fruit from it. Second Samuel also seems to suggest that an everlasting line will come from the line of Jesse. Think about this. We, we look at, at the line of Jesse, which was being cut out, which was being destroyed, which was barely there because Bethlehem was such a small area. That was such a small um, line of David, of Jesse. And God says, you know what? No, I'm out of something that is dead and dying. I can bring life out of it. But out of a small place, out of a, a, a line that is dying out, God chose to bring a Messiah from it. He could have said, I, can show, I could have chose the one of the tw- biggest tribes of the 12 tribes of Israel. I could have chose the most um, wealthy, the most popular, the, the hardest working. But he goes, I'm going to choose Jesse's, the tribe of David. He's like, I'm going to choose someone who has not a lot of influence, not a lot of sway. But if you look at that, more than likely, um, what they say is that a lot of theologians think that David was born out of wedlock. And so that he was a son that was born out of wedlock of Jesse and, and someone else. And so he was often pushed to the side. The brothers discounted him wasn't thought of as much, but God chose him out of sin to bring life. Malachi 3.1, it says, Then suddenly the Lord you are seeking will come to this, his temple. The messenger of the covenant whom you desire will come, says the Lord Almighty. This is Malachi. This is the final book that God speaks to his people. And then he is silent for 400 years. Can you imagine that? Being the last generation that has heard from God and no generation has heard from God since then. He's not spoken to a man to give word to Israel. Can you imagine that the, the anticipation of those people saying, maybe it's this generation that's going to hear from God. 400 years. That's like five to six generations of people that have not heard from God. Life expectancy wasn't very long back then, just letting you know. So. But think about this. You're waiting in expectation that God is going to 
speak. They're thinking, God, stop speaking. Is his son coming? Is he going to deliver us? Is he gonna... What's happening? They don't know. They're like, God just all of a sudden stopped speaking to us. Is he mad at us? Is he angry with us? No, he wasn't mad. He wasn't angry. He was preparing the soil for what he was going to plant. He was preparing the people for what he was going to give them. He was staying silent so his son could speak. He was remaining quiet so his son could make an impact in the people around him. Although Christ came to the temple many times in his life, only two people were registered of his birth, and that was Simeon and Anna. Think about it, two minor blips in history were the only people that got to be acknowledged that saw the Savior of the world and to recognize the Savior of the world. Those two little, you know, 12 sentences got to acknowledge and see the Savior of the world before he was the Savior of the world. They saw him as a baby and not as the sacrificial lamb. But what's great about that is this, is two little blips in history celebrated what they saw. How many, you know how many other people throughout history were probably similar to Anna and Simeon and other places in the world were waiting for their Savior to come. But God said, you know what? You're going to be chosen to see the Savior in the flesh. Inconspicuous, unrecognizable as a Savior, just a, a little child brought in and they got to see Him. And they recognized that it was him. Think about this. How many hundreds, uh, thousands of people walked by him in the temple? Just walked by another kid, another kid. There's thousands of kids probably being brought in to the temple to be dedicated, whatever, and a sacrifice given for. And thousands of kids. But these people recognized the Savior. They recognized who he was and they celebrated what they saw. And then Numbers 24, 17, it says this. It says, a star will come out of Jacob. It will rise out of Israel. And what that's referring to is the Christmas star. That's referring to the star that the wise men followed and saw. They saw something in the east and needed to follow it because they knew what it was. They knew the prophecies. They knew what was going to happen. They knew who he was, when they saw that star, they're like, oh, it's time for us to go. Think about it. They got to be there and see the child. They weren't Jewish people. They weren't, but they knew, what, they knew who he was. They believed in who he was. They believed in what he was going to do. And so when you look at that, when you see that even Scripture says there's going to be a star that is going to rise. So they, here's the thing is they understood. They listened to what 
the Torah said. They listened to what the scholars and the prophets in the Old Testament had said, and they held on to that. Think about this. So 700 years is roughly an estimate, give or take a few, for most of the prophecies of Jesus. So you have 300 years before God stopped speaking. Or excuse me, 400 years before God stopped speaking, and 300 more on top of that from when this, these prophecies were given. Now think about that. These men followed a star because of a prophecy that was given 700 years ago. How much did they cherish those words that were written for them that they would follow a star? They knew the value of those words because they knew the value of what was coming from those words. And so when we, when we have a direction from the Lord, God gives us a, a, a word, gives us a, 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 an insight of where we should go, I think we need to start to cherish that. Start to, to find higher value in that. Because these men held on to a prophecy from prophets for 700 years, or, or 700-year-old prophecy, and said, okay, we're going we're gonna to do this. As soon as we see this star, we're going to go take, we're going to take off, we're going to follow this. And these men didn't have a Savior. These men didn't have the Holy Spirit living inside of them. And I think when we, because we do, because we have him, uh, the Holy Spirit inside of us, living in us, dwelling in us, guiding us, we need to start to look at the, the Word of God and say, how valuable is this? We have brothers and sisters in, in foreign countries that can't get Bibles. And they will take pages of Bibles and they, and they treasure it. And they, they love it. But we take, we take our, our Scripture and the prophecies in it for granted. I think when we, we start this new year, I think we need to have a higher, higher value for Scripture a better understanding of Scripture, a better understanding of theology, of who Jesus is. And I, I don't, I'm not saying we all have to be theologians, but I'm saying we should have a better grasp on Scripture because we ha- there's, if we love Jesus, we should love His Word. If we value the gift that was given to us and we celebrate it at, in December then we should have a higher value for understanding His Word. I think in our culture, it, it's, we want to have feel-good Christianity because it, it makes us feel good. Oh, I, I just felt so encouraged when I got out of there. I like to feel like I'm a little bit wrong sometimes when I read Scripture. Because if you just feel encouraged when you read Scripture, then the Holy Spirit is not convicting you. When you read Scripture... You should say, oh, yeah, I'm kind of scummy sometimes. And it goes against feel-good Christianity. And I'm not trying to make you feel horrible about yourselves. But what I'm saying is, is this, is when we look at Scripture, we should be able to look into the mirror and say, yeah, I need, I need Jesus. 
I'm not going to get all reformed on you and say, you know, you're, you're scum of the earth and you're, you're depraved, and, but we are. I'm just saying. If anybody's reformed and listened to this, I'm sorry. You'll get over it. Um, but God saw, saw value in us. As depraved, as sinful, as rebellious as we are, God saw value in us. There's a, a Johnny Cash song that, yes, I said Johnny Cash in church, that says, I'm an old lump of coal, but I'll be a diamond someday. You guys know that song, yeah. If you don't, buy some Johnny Cash albums, listen to them. You'll, be, you'll like them. Um, and if you don't like Johnny Cash, keep that to yourself. Um, but he saw something of value that he could make something out of us, that he could call out what is good in us, through his son that he could bring it he saw value in us we were having a conversation on the way home last night from a christmas party and we we're like i was asking i said what if god just wanted adam and eve and his kids or and, and their kids just to to be with them just to to walk through the earth and to have conversations with them that he didn't expect them to just go to you know have millions of people but what if he just wanted a relationship with adam and eve and his and their kids and just have that conversation where they're walking the earth and having a conversation doing things together walking and talking like they did in the garden so they walked with god in the cool of the, of the day and i think god has that heart for us still that he just wants to be with us and walk with us and be able to have that conversation with us. And for us to be able to hear him and recognize his voice and to be able to discern his voice. Be like Samuel, and when, when you hear him speak, say, Speak, Lord, your servant is listening. But I think God created us for relationship, but we, when we screwed that up, he said, you know what, I still don't care that you mess that up. I still want a relationship with you. If he didn't, he could have, boom, like that, snapped, everything destroyed, I'll recreate another one in another universe. But I don't think he, he wanted to do that. I think he wanted that relationship with us so much that he said, I'm willing to look past what you've done because I'm going to provide something that will override what you've done. That will make atonement for what you've done and so when we look at jesus we have to say this gift to us is not just so we can have what we want this gift to us is for us to have a relationship with a person that we can't have a relationship with unless we accept this gift our culture wants to be like oh there's just there's so many ways to heaven and it's, everybody's just you know there's multiple gods bullcrap there's not i'm just saying right now there's one way in jesus christ is the way he says i am the way the truth and the life no one comes to me except through the except uh, to the father except through me there we go <laughs> say that 10 times fast yeah. but that's the thing is god wants us to have that relationship with him he gave us a savior in the form of a child came in lowly, unrecognized, not wealthy, not in a place of prestige or power. He brought in a small child that would be raised up to be a sacrifice for us. And as that sacrifice, he would now have a chance 
and an option to have that relationship with the Father. So when we, ha- when we look at Jesus, it's not about, oh, Jesus, thank you so much for what you've done for me. Yes, what has he done for you? First of all, he gave us the option to have a relationship with the Father. I say option because he doesn't, re- he doesn't say you have to have a relationship. He gives us the opportunity. It's like putting it in, in his hand. He says, this is, if you want to have a relationship with the Father, this is what you have to take. Our submission to him, our love for him, our lives given up for him. Just like he gave up his life for us, we have to give up our life to him. And so when we look at Jesus, we have to say, you know what, your gift to me is not what I want. It's not the, it's not the healing. It's not the, the finances. It's not the f- good family. It's not that. It's the first gift to us. The most important thing is reconciliation with our Father who created us, who loved us, who made a way for us, who gave up his only son. A lot of us can't even give up our, uh, our time to serve God, but he gave up his son to serve, God, to serve us, to have a relationship with us. Think about that. We get too busy to have a relationship with God, but he gave up his son to have a relationship with us. I'm just so busy, I just can't do this. Uh, I get too busy to read scripture. I get too busy to, to pray. I get too busy to spend time with God. And he's like, well, that's okay. I just gave up my son for you. I just gave up my only son for you. So when we look at when we look at Jesus, we have to say, this gift is not just a gift of, of blessing to us and and. Uh, prosperity to us like he, he promises. This is a gift of reconciliation. Because we're called, what did Paul call us? He says we are ministers of what? Reconciliation. That means that we facilitate reconciliation of people who are lost to Jesus and to the Father. If anything that you can take away from this now is this, is you are called as believers, if you are born again, you are called to be followers of Jesus and to, to administer reconciliation of the lost to the Father. And how do we do that? We introduce them to Jesus. Sorry, I go up. That was a little bit of a rant there. So Micah 5.2 says, But you, Bethlehem, though you are small among the clans of Judah, out of you will come one who will rule over the land of Israel. This is why Herod wanted him dead. This is why they had to leave Egypt. Is because out of a small place, he was going to set a ruler up, and his kingdom was. Ne- and it says the kingdom will never end. And like I talked about a minute ago, Isaiah fifty-three three says, "Like the one whom people hid their faces, he was despised, and we held him in low esteem." He came from a lowly station. He came from a no, nobody's place in Nowhereville, and no one knew him. Jesus was raised in Nazareth of Galilee and was born in a manger. His beginnings were humble and not like any royal successor before that. Jesus 
was chosen a lot like David was chosen. You know, we, the people of Israel couldn't keep themselves under control for a couple days when, when Moses went to get the Ten Commandments from God. They're throwing parties, worshiping cows down there, and, you know, it's like, you know, hey, let's just build an idol of a calf, and we're going to worship that while, while Moses is up there because we need something to, to worship. And so God gives them rules. And then they move to the promised land. And they're like, oh, we're doing... God's like, I am your God. I am your, I am your king. Oh, but we need a physical king. And God's like, really? We're going to do this? He's like, fine. If you really do this, if you really need this, I will give you what you ask for. So he gives them Saul. A lot of good that did him. But what happens is when God anoints a true, anointed the true king, what did he do? He didn't look for the prestige. He didn't look for the money. He didn't look for who was in a, a political place of power. He went out into a field and looked for a man who was tending sheep and defended his sheep and loved his sheep. And out of that same line, he brought a king who asked Peter, he says, do you love my sheep? Yes. Do you love my sheep? Yes. God chose a lowly position to bring the king of the universe to. And I think, you know, in, in our culture, it's like, well, how, how do you have power? You're born into it. You're born into wealth a lot of times. You're born into money. You're born into political families, and then you have power. But God said, I'm going to use the most inconspicuous way of bringing a Savior to you so you can live a life with him. And he brought it out of Jesse and David. Not of Solomon, out of Joseph's line. And he says, you know what? Out of a stump that looks dead, I'm going to bring you life. Out of a, a place that looks dried up and dead, I'm going to bring you life. I'm going to bring you eternal life. So when we look at Jesus, what is he? He is the expectation and a fulfillment of a promise that was promised to the Old Testament, but he is a promise to us in a new covenant that we will have an everlasting Savior, an everlasting King, someone who is a brother to us. A lot of people don't realize that. He is a brother to us. And he can understand what we are going through, because he's gone through it. He can recognize the troubles and the sorrows and the pains and the joys, the good and the bad, because he went through it. And so when we look at Jesus, we have to say, it's not just my Savior. Yes, that is the most important part of it. But he is our brother. He walks with us. He's, he's dealt with what we have dealt with. And He fights with us. He makes intercession for us. That's the best part of it. 
is not only is he our Savior, but he makes intercession for us. He is praying for us. He's going to the Father for us. That should encourage you. That while we're going through what we're going through, while we see what God is doing, and it may not look like he's doing anything at that moment, Jesus is up there going, hey God, what about them? Remember them? This person. We need, we need to do something for this person. I'm, call, I'm, I'm asking you to do something for this person. He is making intercession for us. He is going to God for us and saying, Lana, Sarah, Jared, Kaylee. Kaylee needs to feel better. He's like, God, let's work on that. He can understand what we're going through. He understands where we've been and what we're going, what we're going to deal with. And so as we deal with that, remember, He's working on your behalf. He's going to our Father, His Father, and saying, let's, let's help them out with that. Let's work with that. Because not only does the Father love us, but the Son loves us. The Son loves us enough to lay His life down for us. That while we were yet sinners, He died for us. Yes. And so when we gather around the Christmas tree and we sing baby Jesus songs and, you know, all that stuff. Sorry, I'm just... I'm, when we sing those songs, I think we need to look at Him beyond that point. You know, we sing Away in the Manger. And we talk about the gift. But the true gift is what happened on the cross and after the cross. The burial, the resurrection, the keys of hell taken. So when we, when we gather around the Christmas tree, when we sing these songs of, of remembrance of, of Christmas time, remember Him as our brother and our conquering King who will return. And when He puts His foot down on the mountain, I want to be there with like a video camera and be like, let's go. Be live streaming it. Be like, look, guess who's back? But he is our coming king. He is the eternal reward for us. He, and I can't even begin to imagine what it will be like when he comes back and he says, oh, hey, by the way, it's time to go home. No death, just, hey, I'm back, we're leaving. And we get to spend not only eternity with Him, but with the Father. And so when we look at that, we, we, we can celebrate Christmas, we can celebrate, but it's all a, a, a um, fine thread that leads to what He's done and who He is. And celebrate who he is now, not what he was. Yes, he was a child. But he was a man who died on the cross for us. To take away the sins of the world. Because his father saw value in us while we were yet sinners. Christ died for us. That all may come to the father and none may perish. That is hard to wrap my head around that none may perish, that He loves us. Do you imagine the, the amount of compassion and love that He has that He wants none to perish? We have a bad day and we get mad at somebody that cuts us off. And we're like, you can go to... You, well, you know. Um, 
But God says that he loves them enough to send his son that none may perish, that all may have everlasting life. And so when we, we talk about Christmas, we, we do these little nativity scenes for our kids, I think we also need to talk to them about who Jesus is. Not just the, the baby that came in the manger, but who he is as the Son of God. That why he came, what he did on the cross, and why, how we can have a relationship with him. You want to disciple your kids? You want your kids to, to grow up to be good followers of Christ? Teach them at a young age who Jesus is. You can sing the corny songs with them, but help them understand who He is. You can take the manger scene and describe and talk about who He is with your kids. Seven hundred years of prophecy before he was born. We spent two thousand years with him preparing a place for us. But he came in a stable with nothing. But he says, I go to what? Prepare a place for you. Because what does he do? He takes a lowly position so he can raise us up. He takes a lowly position in life to bring us into eternal life with streets of gold. He brings us into a relationship with the Father as He is being separated from His Father. Think about this. In Genesis, He says what? I'm going to make, let's make man in what? Our image. And so when Jesus is is coming down to the Father. He, is, he has union with the Father, but he is, he is now away from His Father. So as we go through the Christmas season, we have to say, you know what? Jesus gave up everything to be with us and for us. He sits in the garden and He sweats blood and He says, can you take this from me? Will you take this from me? But He says, but if you won't, he didn't, say, he didn't say, oh, I'm just going to stop doing this. He said, but it's not my will, it's your will be done. So when he's in the garden sweating blood, asking God if, the, if this cup from if crucifixion and the, the separation from God can be removed from him, he says, if you can do it, that'd be great. But if you won't, I will submit to that. So when we look at Jesus, we have to say, we look at baby Jesus in the little manger scene. We got the little knick-knack that sits on the, on the mantle or on the table somewhere. Look beyond that. Look beyond what, what the, the little figurine is. Start to explore who he is. Start to understand who he is. Start to thank him for who he is. Thank the Father for what he has given us. Because it's funny that the smallest thing in the manger scene is what? is the baby Jesus. But it, is, it, it doesn't make sense. In your mind, you think it's the biggest gift we've ever had, so it should be giant manger and, and little people. And, and because Jesus is the greatest gift that this world has ever seen. But it says in Isaiah, he came as a lowly person. 
And so in an unseen place, in an unknown town, in an un, by an unknown uh, father and mother, he came into the world. But that gift was larger than it, anybody could ever foreseen. So when you sit around the Christmas tree, when you sing those songs, think about who he is, not as a, as a child, but as Emmanuel, God with us, the coming king who will reign forever. Let's pray.